This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. It's a joy and a privilege to be with you this um, afternoon. If you have your Bible with you or you have your bulletin, uh, it would be great if you keep it open. Today I decided to use the ESV version, so um, it will be helpful um, if you use that. Or you can use your own um, version as well. But let me begin by praying with us. Oh Father, we thank you for the book of Romans. We've learned what we have, uh, we've heard what you have to tell the world, um, to Jews and Gentiles, that we're all sinners. So Father, we pray as we come to today's very important passage that you can help us understand how you deal with our sins and how you will save sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the iconic 1997 movie Titanic, some of us would not have watched it, some of us have. The iconic movie Titanic which brought Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet to stardom. There was an emotional yet humorous scene at the very end. If you have watched the movie, you you know what I'm talking about. It was arguably the most talked about scene in the whole movie. Because near the end, as the Titanic was sinking into the freezing North Atlantic Ocean, the hero Jack Dawson, played by Leonardo, decided to sacrifice his life for his loved one, Rose. So they were clinging on to a floating raft and Jack decided to let Rose climb on the board to stay alive while he remains in the water. So as Rose lay on the floating raft freezing and Jack was submerged in the ice water dying, Jack gave his parting words. Rose, listen to me. Winning that ticket to get on board Titanic was the best thing that ever happened to me. It brought me to you and I'm thankful, Rose. I'm thankful. You must do me this honor. Promise me you will survive. That you'll never give up no matter what happens. No matter how hopeless. Promise me now and never let go of that promise. Rose was shivering, looking at Jack and says, I promise. Jack said again, Never let go. Rose replied, I promise I will never let go, Jack. I will never let go. With that, Jack froze to death. And shortly after, Rose pushed him and he sunk right into the sea. Now, as the fans look on, many were overwhelmed by the final scene where Jack sacrificed himself for Rose. But even more so, when that floating raft seems big enough for two people to be on. <laughs> there were even blocks attempting to show how Jack and Rose could both fit into the raft. <laughs> they, you know, they even tried playing cards there. Did, did Jack really have to die to save Rose? Was it possible that both of them just climb on top of the huge raft together? Well, to put an end to the escalating uproar, the director James Cameron said, he gave the final verdict, no, they cannot both climb on the floating raft. And yes, Jack has to die. 
And the reason is because of buoyancy. If both of them get a raft, they will capsize. They cannot bow beyond above the water. One will have to give way. Today, as we come to Romans 3.21, we come to a seemingly impossible situation God has put himself in. The righteous God, he has promised to save a people for himself. But as history unfolds, everyone in this world sins and rebels against God. And so justice demands that God must punish everyone for their sin. So God has put himself in a fix. How will God keep his promise to save people drenched in sin? And yet God remains just if he forgive sinners. Or to put it another way, can God really be just and forgiving at the same time? Can God promise, God's promise to save people and God's righteous judgment stay afloat on the same raft? In all human logic, the answer must be no. Because if God simply declares sinners as righteous, God fails as the judge of the universe. But if God simply judges all sinners and no one gets saved, God fails in keeping his promise. Can God do the impossible to judge and save sinners? At the same time, can God do the miracle of keeping his righteous judgment and his righteous promise afloat on this raft? A, a human defying impossibility that no humans could imagine a solution to that. Well, today's passage will give us a very shocking answer, and that is, yes, it is possible. God can both judge sin and save repented sinners. In fact, today's passage is one of the most important passages in our whole Bible, and more important than you and I may instinctively think. Because here's the reason. While you and I, we are actually used to broken promise, we're used to injustice in our world. We see it everywhere. But God cannot be like that. The God of the universe cannot be unjust, nor can he break promises. If the God of the universe fails to be a righteous, just God, our whole world will collapse. Because our whole world, our whole universe, depends on a God who will make wrong right, who will judge evil and bring justice to everyone. But if God fails to keep his promise to save a people for himself, then you and I are doomed. And the world is still doomed because a God who is unable to keep promises, he will not have the ability to sustain a world. So do you see the dilemma and the importance of this? So how will God keep justice and forgiveness afloat on the same raft? We come you come to find out by digging into today's passage beginning in verse 21. Let me read this as God's righteousness is revealed. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. 
In our previous weeks, we have gone on for a few weeks from Romans 1.18 to 3.20, Paul sketched for us the spiritual status of our whole world, of the Gentiles, of the Jews, of you and of me. We saw how the Gentiles sin against God by living their life hardened against God, indulging in sin. We saw how the Jews sin against God by failing to keep the law and so they were like the Gentiles. We saw how our own hearts were corrupted and our own sinfulness are manifest in the words that we say, in the works that we do in our history. We have seen how we have hurt each other in words and in action and this were not done out of weakness. This was just a revelation of what is inside us. So we have seen all this and we recognize that the world's message that some of us can go to heaven is an illusion. Because on that final day, we're not going to face man, we're going to face God. And so here we have a God who cannot pretend that he did not see our sin and he has to judge us. How will he forgive us? So we left off last week confronted that we are entrenched in sin, we are hopeless, and we will not know how to get out. Because when the law speaks, men become silenced. But now, just as we are feeling the weight of sin and the incoming wrath of God, today Paul begins with two words that stamped the e-break into all that he has said. He said these two words in verse 21. Look at it. He began with these two words, But now... And these two words, but now, put that sudden break to the oncoming righteous wrath of God that we cannot avoid and to bring in a righteousness that is apart from the law. Because this is how it works. Many of the, many of Paul's listeners, when they hear the law, they think of the law as a ladder that you climb to get to heaven. But today Paul carries on, he says, the law, in fact, the prophets, in fact, the whole scripture, is not a ladder, it is an arrow. It's an arrow that points to how God will save. He points out two truths. One is we are sinners, but second truth is that God can righteously save sinners through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So look at 21 to 23. I'll read to us and we'll unpack how he reveals that righteousness. Look at 21 to 23. I'll read for us. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the law and the prophets, they are witnesses of God that in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is made available to everyone. So the first truth, Paul has really extended at length from chapter 1 to chapter 3. No distinction, we have all failed, we are all drowning in sin, awaiting judgment. It is almost imagine that we are in a Titanic, but this time around there's no raft, there's no lifeboats, we are 640 kilometers from land, so it doesn't matter where you are a non-swimmer or you're Olympic swimmer, whether you sink after 50 meters or you swim 100 kilometers and get eaten by a shark, there's no difference. None gets there. And if we get there, it is not by our effort. 
And when it says falling short of glory of God, it really means that we lack the glory of God, the glory that God has given us to reveal Him and reflect Him, and we have none of that. So as the law points that to us, we keep silent. But here comes that second truth. Look at it. Is that God had included in the law and the prophet and scriptures, He embedded in it a promise to save people out of slavery from sin. And God says, I will keep that promise. I'll just turn three of what, three, three passages briefly from the law and the prophets from the scriptures, what God has said. Because God will remember His promise. This is what uh, is written in Psalms 105 verse 7 and 8, that He is the Lord our God, His judgment are on, are in all the earth, but He remembers His covenant forever, the promise He made for thousands of generations, those He made to Abraham, to Isaac. And if you move on, Psalms 98, God promised He will actually reveal righteousness when He saves. Look at 98 verse 2. The psalmist says, The Lord has made His salvation known and revealed His righteousness to the nation. When the Lord saves, He reveals that He is the righteous one. He keeps His words. And of course, the famous verse in Ezekiel 36, 25-26, God promised to save sin-drenched people and make them clean. Look at it. This is what the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. These are all the promises embedded uh, in it that they point to something that God will do and must do and will accomplish to stay righteous. So friends, if you and I, we have a problem with sin, the scriptures point to us, God will deal with it. So while we are all equally sinful and we are rightfully to be judged, as the law reveals, the scripture points that God will save us. And here he points through Jesus Christ. So this amazing reality that Paul brings us, that God knows how wretched we are. And because of that, he embedded in his word a promise. And I will deal with their wretchedness. So that they can be righteous freely. Not because it's so cheap, but because history points that we can't give anything to get righteous before God. Now someone once told me this, Andrew, I have no problem believing in Jesus as I do with all the other gods. I would just add him among the collections that I worship. If for a moment we think that is the way of faith, I think we totally miss that two prongs of God's word because the first prong is that we are sinners before the second prong that comes in and God will deal with it if we have faith in him. So faith, when we come to think about faith in Jesus, it's not an impersonal thing, it's not an insurance it is not um, just adding in as a way to get out of hell. But, in, but faith in Jesus in, involves these two things. Recognize who we are and recognize who He is. So faith in Jesus, up to this point when Paul brings it out, is He wants us to recognize who we are in order that we can recognize who He is. Now someone puts it this way. 
Uh, I put it up as a slide. God's righteousness is available only through faith in Christ, but it is available to anyone who has faith in Christ. So the, the, the point that Paul E breaks to bring in is that after recognizing who we are, that we can be saved if we have faith in Jesus Christ. So the question falls back to us by the time Paul reaches here is, it is available, but do you recognize that you need it? Now as God offers this um, way to be saved to us, there's this one question that you and I, if we think clearly, we have to come back to ask. Okay, wait a minute. How can Jesus possibly save us in such a way that God's righteousness to judge and God's righteousness to save stay afloat? It comes back to the same question. Okay, Jesus, God sent Jesus to save us, but how will Jesus keep God's righteousness to judge and God's righteousness to save afloat on the raft? And so look at verse 35 to 30, 33 to 35 with me as Paul explains God's righteousness in Jesus. I'll read this to us and we'll unpack it. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now we have quite a few big words from verses 23 to 25 Justify meaning declare righteous, redemption, propitiation by his blood. Right? This is, this is what it means. Think with me for a moment. This is what it means that we have all sinned, but by God's grace, a gift, he declares all who put their faith in Jesus as righteous. It's a legal term. To all who put their faith in Jesus, God acquit them from all their charges that's made against them, and they are declared right. But how can God make such a declaration? And this one, 23-25, comes in, because those who come to Jesus, Jesus redeems them. Jesus makes a payment to set us free from the obligation that's required of us. You picture with me for a moment, in the first century, you have men, you have women, you have children, who are enslaved in a slave market. Some of them unwillingly, perhaps prisoner of wars, others because they owe such a debt, they can't pay, and they're all put in the slave market, and none can be free. They are not their own anymore. They belong to someone else. But in comes this capable man who has the resources to pay off what they owe to redeem them and set them free. Now, what is the problem that we have? Our problem is sin. Because of sin, we are not free. We are under the wrath of God. And Jesus, that mighty man, came in to make the payment for your sin and my sin. And how does Jesus pay for our sin? Well, the scripture tells us he dies on the cross. And this is where we come to the important verse 25. There's this unusual word that manifests and unravels the impossible work that only God 
can achieve so that he can justly forgive sinners who put their faith in Jesus. So look at verse 25. Let me read that again for us. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus was put forward by God himself as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, what does the word propitiation even mean? Well, Christopher Ash puts it this way. I thought it was really helpful. He says, propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. Let me say that again. Propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. So Jesus paid the price for us by dying on the cross in order that God's wrath is taken away from us and we are redeemed from judgment. Now I just want to pause here. I want to first help us to think what Jesus' sacrifice is not. And then we will come back to actually understand what his sacrifice actually is. How can the just wrath of God be taken away when Jesus sacrificed himself? I want to say what is not first, and then we will start to understand what that actually means. Now imagine in many situations, you have seen, you have experienced whereby people try to appease another person who is angry. Uh, you have a man who comes out and buys a jewelry for his wife on a non-anniversary day or to a girlfriend to appease and anger. Perhaps he has, he has done something wrong and <laughs> the more expensive it is, probably the more serious the offense is uh, that he does. Or perhaps, I remember foolishly in my teens where I, I bought some cakes along home with my pocket money along with my report card, hoping that I would appease some wrath. <laughs> when I bring it and open it up. Or perhaps in various cults and mythologies where people would perversely offer children or babies to the gods, to the demons, to appease some anger. Is that what is happening when Jesus sacrificed the innocent man dies on the cross? Was he there just to appease an angry God? That is not what happened. Because if that is what has actually happened, perhaps it's right for some people to reject Christianity. Because how can a God delight in just an innocent man die and just forgive another person's sin? That is not what propitiation means. Rather, this is what it means. I want to read to us two passages and I want to unpack what the propitiation means that Christ has done, looks like. I want to read to us from Philippians 2, 5-8, to and then 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I put it up the screen, but let me read it for us. Philippians 2, 5-8 b to says this, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus Christ, who's God, took the form of man to die on the cross. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. Let me read this for us. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what happens when Jesus was put forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice, dying that unimaginable death on the cross on our behalf to remove God's wrath on us. Jesus came to us. He was born as a man to represent us. We'll come back to that in Romans 5. He lived that perfect life we cannot live to reveal the life of one who does not sin and who does not lack the glory of God. He lived it to represent us. And while the world and the law reveals us condemned, the law points, this is what it looks like. But then Jesus, when he died on the cross, he was not just fully man, but he is fully God. When he died on the cross, he didn't die just as an innocent man. Jesus was there on the cross as one who was most offended by sin. Because he is God himself. You imagine with me, there's this drunkard. He's not supposed to drive. He had his 12 glasses of beer. He drove. He crashed right into a bus stop and injured a man severely. So severe he was that he was paralyzed from neck down. As the man was there lying in the hospital, no one has the rights to forgive the drunkard except the man that was lying there on the bed. Can another pedestrian come along and say to the drunkard, you know, don't worry, I forgive you. That doesn't work. The only person who can forgive is the man lying there who was most offended by the crime. And for him to say, I forgive you, it will cost him everything. For the offender to forgive the offender, he has to absorb all of the cost. And that's where Philippians 2, 5-11 to puts forth something very important, 5-8, to to understand what Jesus did on the cross. Because Jesus didn't come just as a man. He came as a representative. In fact, he came as God. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just represent us. He represents God himself. He did not die as an innocent man alone. He came absorbing the cause as the very one most offended by sin. You see the full extent of that on the cross. As man says, crucify him, he absorbs the worst sin of man as God. And as he cried to God the Father, Father, forgive them. The only person who has rights to cry that out is not the pedestrian on the road. It's the one that was inflicted and the one who was most offended. And God the Father, as he listens to God the Son cry out, Father, forgive them. He says, that is the only person who can demand that. Because when he says that, he absorbs all the draft that the world and sinners deserved. And God sent his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came and that great exchange happened. We take his righteousness. He takes our offense 
on the cross. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, God may declare us the righteousness of God. Now who can possibly imagine the cost to God that He may be both just and forgiving? To righteously judge all sin, to righteously forgive the offenders who turn to Jesus. Your friends, do you, do you and I think enough to realize and recognize the love of God and the cost to God to offer forgiveness to you and to me? Do we even dare to look at the cross and say to God, but God, I'd like to contribute a little bit for my forgiveness. I'd like to contribute a bit of good works that you may forgive me. God forbid that anyone dares to say that when we look at the cross and ask for forgiveness. Because that great exchange is done apart from our capacity to do anything. Because we can't. So there's nothing that our hands can bring. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can only be justified by receiving the gift of forgiveness when we trust in our Lord Jesus Christ for your forgiveness, for, for my forgiveness. You know, last week we ended our message with a very somber message that unless we recognize we are sinners, we cannot fully accept the cross and the forgiveness. Because if we do not see that we are sinners, then logically, if you are a logical person, you should look at the cross and despise it and say it is a shame, a pity, it's ridiculous. But if you are someone who recognizes that you are a sinner, then when we look at the cross, it gives the greatest comfort that no one else could possibly give. Because it offers a great exchange that he absorbed the raft and we get the righteousness that God, when he looks at a forgiven sinner, he says, and you are my righteousness. You're the righteousness of God. That is what happens on the cross. Now friends, as we come to the end of today's passage, I just want to bring you to one last amazing thing about the great news of Jesus that's embedded in today's passage. Because right from the beginning, God knew that we are going to sin. And right from the beginning, God has planned Jesus to deal with our sin. So let me read the last two verses for us. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He has passed over former sins. He was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Some of you are avid moviegoers who thinks a lot when you watch movies. If you're one, then you'll be very familiar with how some good movies are structured. For some movies, if you miss the first five minutes, you basically miss the whole storyline. You're trying to understand without knowing what's happening. Perhaps something like Star Wars, that in the first five minutes, just that credits come out with a few um, DOS-looking words and they explain something that might have taken a few hours to explain. The intro makes all the difference. But it's another kind of movie 
that if you miss the last five minutes of the movie, the whole show doesn't make sense to you because there are just things that pops in and out during the movie that you scratch your head a little bit, let it pass, but at the last five minutes, the whole thing opens your eye and you recognize it. There's a movie called Sixth Sense. Anybody has watched it before? Okay, it's an old movie. The, the, the story is this. If you're not, um, <laughs> right, telling my age. This is a fictional thriller or horror movie. It goes around the story of a child psychologist. The show shows that he was trying to help this troubled young boy who can see dead people. So the whole show shows how he tried to help this young boy and perhaps use his gift. And the story goes on. There's some weird things that are happening throughout the movie and you, you just let it pass until the very end, the last part of the story, suddenly you realize that the child psychologist who was trying to help the boy, he was actually dead. And in that split second moment, you realize it was the boy who was trying to help him reconcile who he was, that he was dead. And when you look at it, suddenly you look at the whole story, you realize the man that's been walking around talking to people, he was actually not talking to anyone. No, was, no one was responding to him except the boy. And the story that makes you scratch your head, suddenly you realize what the whole story is about. Now as you come to the scriptures, there are some events in it that don't fully make sense if you're a careful reader until Christ appears and dies on the cross. When you read the Bible and the history of humanity, there are many occasions where God judges the, the God of the universe who judges the universe forgives sins. He forgives the Israelites. David, King David, who committed murder, adultery, and treason, God forgives him. God allows people to use animal sacrifice to be forgiven. And God, who was supposed to condemn the whole world, He beholds His hand. And if you're a careful reader and says, God is a righteous God, you scratch your head a little bit and wonder, can God really just forgive David like that? Can God really just say, well, the animal is sufficient? Can God really withhold His punishment and still be a just God? And that is actually questions that if you're a careful reader, you have scratched your head. But all this history, as God passed over the sins, He doesn't fully extend His wrath. God knew that when He said, I forgive you, the cost that's going to be upon His own Son. God knew the cost that Jesus will have to pay. So look at 25 to 26 as I read it again and you experience what it's really saying. This, that is the death of Jesus as a sacrifice, was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He has passed over former sins, all those sins He passed over in history, all those judgments He withheld. It was to show His righteousness at the present time that is, all the judgment accumulated in its totality falls right onto His own Son, Jesus Christ. So that God, as you read on, might be just and the one who declares righteous the others who have faith 
in Jesus. So that God is, is just when He says to you and me, you are righteous. Because Jesus pays it all. So dear friends, this is the righteousness of God, the righteous God who made the world, who loves us, and who offers righteousness in Jesus. If you're a Christian, many of us are, if we have put our faith in Jesus, this short passage, I pray that it will impress upon us how difficult it is and how costly it is for the God of the universe to be just and to be willing to forgive us. That we may worship Him with all that we have because He deserves to be worshipped. For those of us who think about Christianity, we are still wrestling with it, perhaps, then perhaps as you look at this passage, that we will recognize that God loves you and loves me. And as I'm going to close this time, I want to pray. I pray what we have learned today and I invite you to pray with me and to thank God that He is a righteous God who judges, He is a righteous God who saves. Let's pray. Dear Father, only You can do the impossible to judge sins, evils, wrongs and still forgive us when we repent and put our trust in Jesus. Oh God, we have all sinned. We lack the glory you made us for. We have lived lives the way we want rather than to live in obedience to you. But as we turn to you now in our life, as we ask for your forgiveness, we bring nothing to you because we have nothing to offer. For forgiveness, we come only believing in Jesus as our King, our Rescuer, and I trust, and we trust His death to pay for our sins. So forgive us for the sake of Jesus and make us the followers of Jesus. In His name we pray and give thanks and give glory to You. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.